Hello and welcome to the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be wrapping up this series on historical cycles and historical patterns. I have wrapped up kind of the overview and the framework of that. And now what I'm going to do is go back to some of the material and some of the people that uh, were featured on this show way back in between season two and season three. So that would be Vin Armani, Michael Vlahos, uh, Julianne Romanella, and Allison McDowell. And those are the people that I will be uh, covering in this current episode. At least it will be content from the interviews with those people. So like I've been doing in season four as a whole, is I'm taking a lot of the content that's been covered on this podcast over the past few years and condensing large sections and themes down to single episodes or small series that are from a much more macro perspective. And I'm trying to connect all of these pieces together and introduce some new content and some updates in the middle of all that as well. And so I think this has been going very well. I've at least been very pleased and gotten some good feedback from you, the listener, multiple times. And so I really appreciate that. And that is what we're doing today. We'll wrap up this series, then we'll get into the next set of content after this. So before we get started, I will say that I did an interview on the Toward Anarchy show with Michael Storm. You can find that on the Republic Broadcasting Network, or I'm sure on any podcatcher or on torwardanarchy.com. So if you're interested, we... Uh, it was a little, it felt a little rushed. I guess it was almost an hour and a half, but we talked about so many different things from the, this podcast and what it's about to theology in relation to anarchy, to uh, historical cycles and patterns, to a little bit about digital currencies, to PMAs and business structures that are outside of the system and agorism all of this stuff. So it, it definitely cramped a lot into a relatively short amount of time. And that I think went really well. So if you're interested, check that out. I will attempt to put a link for that in the show notes. But lately, I've not been very good about getting appearances listed. So I am working on that. I plan this week to add the past few that I've done on the website, as well as upload the audio onto the Patreon uh, page, as well as Subscribestar. Maybe if I can do that, I'll try. I don't know if I've done that before. Subscribestar is a little different, but I'll do what I can. So to set the stage for the remainder of this episode, the bulk of this episode, I want to kind of do a slight refresher of where we left off. So uh, two episodes ago, I covered lots of different philosophers and thinkers over the ages and different theories that they had on historical cycles and patterns of various types, calling out different aspects, all the way from Khaldun back many hundreds of years ago to uh, Ted Kaczynski and Marshall McLuhan that were just uh, a few decades ago. And I covered that in one episode. Then in the episode after that, which was the last episode prior to this one, I brought all of that together, put it under my own framework, the Ages of Man framework, and showed how that does accurately describe history. It sheds light on things that we might not have seen from a typical perspective, even a libertarian perspective. 
and it described our current age very well, the transition we're going through very well, and told us about what the future holds, what what are the trends, at least, that are happening as we transition into this age of science and into technocracy. So, with that being said, the interviews that I did with these people with uh, Vin Armani and on back in the interim between season two and three, it was mainly about uh, this transition we're going through now and what the future holds. And so it was looking at where are we now, where are we going? And especially in light of the past two episodes, I think bringing out this content and bringing it all together from these four individuals, I I think that is going to paint a really, really good picture of uh, where we are and where we're going. And it gives a lot more detail than just the general macro trends that I was talking about last episode. So, what I'll do is start with Vin Armani. Even though he, I did more episodes on that interview than any other, I've got the least amount of information to give you because a lot of it I've already covered even more recently than that interview, as well as the fact that I did a lot of elaboration episodes in between releasing sections of the interview, and I even did a second interview with him. So there's plenty of content. If you're interested in this stuff, go back to listen to that, as well as all these others. Even even though I am covering some of these aspects from content related to uh, what these people cover and talk about and focus on, there's still a lot to be had by going back and listening to those interviews. I recently listened to them all again, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed them, even though I was a part of it originally. And I I think I listened to them all after recording it, and I was still getting new stuff, and it still felt fresh and very applicable. So I would definitely recommend that if you're interested. But let's get into uh, Vin Armani. His main thing is that he says we are headed into, or we are in, the dim age, is how he terms it. He focuses a lot on uh, the cycles between the material to the mystical, as I have covered in the past few episodes, and that's a really big thing. He was heavily influenced by Sarkar and the patterns that he pointed out, and so Venn talks about this and about the archetypes, how we're shifting out of the archetype of the merchant and into the archetype of the commoner, and he talks about how that archetype of the merchant has become corrupt, and that is leading us to the archetype of the commoner rising up. And that's something that he focuses a lot on, and especially shifting into a mystical age or an an age of magic. And he's a little uh, catchy with words in that way. He's not uh, very bland. He definitely is enjoyable to listen to. So uh, one of the aspects that he really calls out is how one one cycle, one archetype, one age, it it corrupts and then it leads to the rise of another age. And as that next age comes into being, the age after that starts to appear and aids the current age. And then the current one becomes corrupt, and uh, we phase into that next one. And so uh, let's try this one more time to see if it makes a little more sense to you, because that didn't seem like it made sense to me. So what you have is you have... Uh, let's just go ahead and give the the example of the age of economics, the age we're coming out of. 
So with the age of economics, you start to have the aspects of the age of science and the archetype of the commoner starting to aid in the age of economics, aid towards the goals of the age of economics. So it's kind of like how I talked about the will to take is what governs the age of economics, whereas the will to know governs the age of science. But as in pursuit of the will to take, uh, the, the society of the age of economics uses the will of the next age. It uses the will to know in order to take more and acquire more and hoard more, all of these characteristics. And so that's what's going on. There's different aspects of the next age that are coming into play and being used by the current age. So in this age of economics, it's using aspects of the age of science. But then as the age of economics, as all of those characteristics start to corrupt, and as the society starts to see that, and we start to get towards the end of that age, it's all of these aspects that were already in play, and were beginning to take more and more prominence, they start to build as the characteristics of the age of economics start to fall. And then as the corruption becomes too much, that next age really rises into prominence, and the age of economics is over, and we come into the age of science. And that is how these ages work, these cycles work. And that aspect of corruption of the institutions and the characteristics of the current age are a really big deal. So if you look at the idea of the Church of Woke, uh, Venermani was the first one, at least in this podcast, to really go into detail about what the Church of Woke is and why that exists. But a big part of that is that it's a response to the corruption of the age of economics. So in the age of economics, you have things like capitalism and giant mega corporations that are kind of the peak of the age of economics. And those have become very corrupted. You also have things like the state and politics becoming extremely corrupted as well. So what do you have in response to that? Well, you have this movement, this woke movement, the Church of Woke, that comes out and is against old-school, traditional, conservative politics, and is against uh, capitalism and megacorporations in a lot of ways, at least in word, if not in deed. And uh, this is a movement that is against the old traditional culture, uh, because that has also become corrupt. Again, all these aspects of society have become corrupt from the age of economics. And in response, you have the Church of Woke that is starting to come up and starting to uh, be part of this transition into the age of science. And with this, you have this issue of the ought-is problem, where there is a big difference between what you ought to do and what you can do, between what is good and just what is. And that is a problem that all societies deal with in different ways and struggle with in different ways. But since we're coming out of a more material age in the age of economics, it's at least mixed between material and immaterial, and we're coming into a purely immaterial age, then 
uh, when you look at the ought is problem, we're heading out of an age that mixes the ought and the is, but it still has a lot of is. It still has a lot of that material aspect, a lot of logic and reason and linear thinking and these types of things. But uh, the ought is is not very prominent. Again, it's a mixed age, and it's still coming out of that materialism of the age of empire, and it hasn't uh, worked its way out completely yet. But what we're heading into is getting rid of that material and shifting into the immaterial, and something needs to fill that void, because there is a void. If we come out of this mixed age in the age of economics that is both material and immaterial, it's both the is and the ought. The ought has become weak and corrupted. If you look at the Christian church, for example, there are plenty of examples of mega churches and corrupt pastors and child abuse in churches, church splits, hypocrisy, all of this kind of stuff. The Even the institutional religion, again, every aspect becomes corrupted. And with this, it's not like you can just get rid of, and I'm talking about the United States, it's different in different countries, but in the United States, which is uh, predominantly, historically, a Christian country, uh, you can't just get rid of all the values and the morals and the principles, all of, all of this, this whole framework for the ought of American society. You can't just get rid of it. That, that's not going to work, and that's not the way that this works. And so what you have to do is you have to replace it with something uh, that, that creates a void when this aspect, the ought of a society, becomes so corrupted. Well, what do you fill it with? And that is what the Church of Woke is. It's filling that void. It's providing that ought. It's telling you what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what is right, what is wrong. How should you live your life? How should you treat others? How should the state operate within society? How do we treat the environment? Uh, How do we define humanity? How do we define man and woman? How do we define a child's rights versus an adult's rights? All of these different things. Uh, These are all answered within the Church of Woke. It's a very universal religion. It covers all these different aspects, and that's what you need. In order to have a true ought that is society-wide, it needs to cover every aspect of one's life. And the Church of Woke does provide that. And that is why it has risen uh, to the extent that it has in the very fast time period that it has as well. And so that's what's going on. Now, as we look at the, the material phasing out, the state is material. The state is a very material institution. So if you think of the founding of America, that was when we were coming out of the age of empire, and uh, we were uh, pretty pretty heartily in the age of economics when the United States was founded. So the United States was founded in a mixed age. And in in that regard, the United States has a very logical, rational, structured, hierarchical system that it was founded under. That would be the Constitution. You could even include maybe the Bill of Rights. These types of things go back before that, the Articles of Confederation. It was this idea of having a structure, something clear, but it also, it was a mix between the is and the ought. It also had the ought of Christianity. These things were based on biblical values, even though a lot of the founding fathers were deists and they weren't all necessarily Christian. They did, in general, follow biblical principles and use that as their moral guidance. And so, 
That is how the country was founded, was a mix between biblical values, Christian morality, and the hierarchical material structure of the state. But again, as we're shifting out of the material, we're shifting out of the state having the same amount of power. And you can see that in all of the political issues that are coming up or have come up over the past few decades even, where states are going against the the state, the federal government. You have individual states that are saying, uh, no, you're not progressive enough, federal government. We are going to allow this thing in our state, even though you say we're not allowed to. And that's because the overall state, the federal government, doesn't have the same power because that material aspect is starting to disintegrate or decentralize. I shouldn't say disintegrate. It's not going completely away, but it is uh, losing some of its prominence as as the immaterial, this new ought, the Church of Woke, is gaining prominence. And as we shift into a new governance paradigm, that brings us into the idea of technocracy. And uh, with technocracy, as well as the Church of Woke, these are, these are things that come from a much more immaterial perspective. This is more of a mystical perspective on things. And even when you look at where technocracy comes from, uh, and the idea of technocracy is that you're managing resources, you're managing society outside of politics. It's more of a resource management system based on data and technology, these kinds of things, fairly objective, and uh, yeah, plenty of issues with that. But uh, with this, the the technocracy and that movement uh, will form from the remnants of the corporate world. So it's coming out of this idea of corporations. Corporations coming out of the age of economics are a very immaterial structure. They're dealing with very material things, products and services, and they do have a structure and a hierarchy, a board, a CEO, all these kinds of things, buildings and whatnot. So it's a mix between the material and the immaterial. But they are a more immaterial aspect than they are a material aspect of modern society. And out of the corporations, which are, again, more immaterial in their idea and perception than, say, the state, uh, out of this more immaterial aspect of modern society comes the technocracy. And uh, one of the things Ven Armani talks about is how corporations uh, can be viewed as gods from an ancient perspective. And I have talked about that recently, where it's basically that you have a corporation and no one that was alive during the founding of, say, Disney is alive today. And yet... Disney still exists. Disney still grows. Disney still does things and acts in this world and influences society. Well, how does it do that? It's not that there is a person behind it that's driving the entirety of Disney. Disney is way too big for that. Disney is something that continues and progresses along a path of its own accord in a sense. And so even if the the concept of Disney, the corporation, is not a sentient entity in and of itself. It is an entity of some kind. You can refer to it in that way. And so from the perspective of the ancients, they would view something like that as a god. That's what the gods are. They're this immaterial thing, much bigger than humanity, not driven by humanity, but they do influence and are over humanity. It's this self-perpetuating 
system, uh, that is how they viewed the gods. And so corporations are more like that, which is a much more mystical, uh, spiritual type of perspective, much more immaterial. And so that's what we are shifting more and more into. Out of that world comes the technocracy, and part of that shift is the Church of Woke coming up into the culture and pushing us forward. And it might be, and I think Vin has referred to this as well, that the Church of Woke gets us started on that push and on that transition and is a big, it, it has a big part to play in that. However, it might be that it's the response to the Church of Woke as we shift back to the right that really pushes us all the way into the age of science, into technocracy and transhumanism, these kinds of things. So it's like the Church of Woke might be what preps us for uh, going fully into this next age, the age of science. And that's more where I would go with it as well, that the Church of Woke, it will go too far. It already has technically gone too far, but hasn't crashed yet. It's kind of like the stock market. It was way overextended two or three years ago, and it still kept going until now I would say we've had quite a bit of a downturn, but not a massive crash quite yet. And that might be happening kind of as I speak. But that's the way things go, where they reach a point where technically they're way overextended, but they keep going until they completely fail and crash. And that kind of seems to be what the Church of Woke is doing now. So uh, that covers most of uh, things that come out of Vin Armani's per perception and the concepts that he talks about. And I'm going to shift into Michael Vlahos. One of the things that Vlahos uh, talks about a lot is that he divides society into two groups. You have the 10% who are over the 90%. And within the 10%, that's made up of the 1% elites and the 9% that serve those elites. And that's how he describes uh, the governance system of society, who is really... Uh, making the decisions, who has the most influence. Well, it's the 1% at the top, but then you also have this 9% that works with them to control the rest of the 90%. He says that cities and civilization naturally lead to a hieratic class where you have this class of the elites and the priesthood and those who are over everything else, that that's naturally where cities lead, naturally where civilization leads. It's just naturally going to progress in that direction. That's how it trends. You're going to have priests and rulers and elites. That's the way it goes. And as this happens, as society organizes in this way, and those that uh, start to shift to the top become more and more to the top and more and more prominent, you start to really get definition around this 10%, the 9% plus the 1%, then you really start to get the concentration of wealth at the top. And the concentration of wealth creates archons of sorts. And that's where you have the 1%. And so, with this, he views this as the framework for how society is now. That's a snapshot of where we are today. And what he says about religion is that religion is about creating a blueprint or a framework for life. 
And the religion that we're coming out of could be considered the American civil religion, or you could say American exceptionalism. And what we're coming into is the Church of Woke. And uh, he is actually uh, chronologically the first person that I have read that talked about the concept of the Church of Woke. He was writing about that years ago. And so that's what he is saying, is that we're shifting out of American civil religion to the Church of Woke, and that's what's happening in our culture today. And again, he's been talking about this for a decade or maybe a little less. And so uh, he's pointing this out that, uh, again, if you look at it from what I was talking about earlier, the materialism of the state to the immaterial cultural religion that's coming around with the Church of Woke. And what he says that the Church of Woke is a tapestry of groups that they are assigned and given rights by the state. And with this, this divides the 90%. And so the Church of Woke is being used by the archons at the top in order to control the rest of society. And with the Church of Woke, uh, we've talked about how there are different cults, like the cult of environmentalism or climate change, the COVID cult, you've got the transgender cult, the alphabet community, all of these different things. And uh, all of these different groups are, are separated out. And who says what these groups can do? Who says how these groups, how their ideologies will affect society? Well, it's the state. The state is the one that says who can or can't marry. The state is the one that says how old you have to be in order to go through transgender surgery. The state is the one that dictates the rules for pollution and carbon emissions and these kinds of things. So it's the state that is uh, overall assigning and giving rights to these different groups of the Church of Woke. And this gives them a lot of power, the state, and who runs the state? Well, it's the archons at the top that ultimately run it. And that's not to say that Joe Biden or Donald Trump are the ones that run the United States or the world. It's to say that uh, overall, if you look at, let's say, the United States government, the biggest influences on that government are the archons, that they are the 1%, and it's usually not the actual president of the country. And uh, they actually usually come from the corporate world, and uh, yeah, that leads us right into the idea of technocracy that, in a way, is already in existence. So, with this, what Vlahos talks about is that American exceptionalism was unified. That's something where everybody comes under the fervor of some national pride and ideal. This is what William Henry Smith talked a lot about, where he saw the the organization that was occurring during World War One, where everything was under this wartime economy. It was very effective, very efficient. The country was very unified towards a common goal, a common purpose. He says that uh, for for society, you have to have control without control. So again, what you do is you can't micromanage and set up all the different boundaries and move all the pieces yourself. No, but you have to have, you still have to have some kind of control over society. And this would be the blueprint of the archons, where how do you have control without dictating uh, material control over everybody. And the way you do that is you do something like you cause division within the country, and then you steer and guide certain groups, and then just let them do their thing. You don't actively control every little aspect of it. But 
in doing so, you are controlling. And so that's the same thing with American exceptionalism, where if you had a unified country under this national pride and patriotism, they're all together, that in and of itself is a method of control for the state, just like the opposite of division and all these individual groups, uh, that is also a method of control. Now, one of the things that he talks about is that uh, culture and the country is very focused on the United States, that they are, are really becoming very corrupted and that you have a lot of issues here. You have a lack of fertility. You have a lack of socialization. You have a breakdown of the family. And if you think about back to the historical patterns and frameworks I talked about, breaking the breakdown of the family is something that's talked about in each one of these as a culture, as an age start to corrupt completely. Uh, you really have a major breakdown of the family unit, which if you look at things like divorce rates and things of this nature over the past, say, 50 years, that will give you a very good picture as well as fertility rates, say, over the past 50 years. And uh, so... With this, you have capitalism and materialism and the Church of Woke. These are all things that are very strong in our current culture in different ways. And so with this, what do these things have in common? And what he says is that they all feed narcissism. They all keep focus on the self and what this does is when you're focused on yourself, what you want, the things you want, on making profits yourself, building wealth yourself, stepping on other people in order to get the things that you want, the Church of Woke is all about the self. It's you do what feels good for you and screw everybody else. And your ideals are the ones that are true and the only ones that should exist. You should impart those on everybody else and force them through coercion or force to obey the Church of Woke doctrine. And so this is all about the self. And with this, the focus on the self, it increases division and isolation, and it increases the wealth and the power of the elites. And so when you have society that becomes more and more divided, and you have the individuals that are more and more isolated and divided, uh, think COVID restrictions as well for a, a more micro example here, then you also end up having the opportunity for the 1% at the top and even the 9% supporting them to build more and more wealth and more and more power, more and more influence, divide and conquer strategy when you're talking about power and influence. And then wealth, again, if you're feeding capitalism, materialism, even a lot of things like climate change and the legislation that comes out with that, with carbon taxes, things like that, they end up funneling money to those at the top. If you look at the Russia-Ukraine conflict, a lot of that aid just basically went to the military-industrial complex and uh, corrupt actors in the political field as well as the corporate field. And a lot of that just funneled money right up to the top. And that's the way it goes. Where does that come from? It comes from taxes, which comes from who? It comes from the common person. It comes from the 90%. And so money funds are taken from the 90% and they're funneled up to the top. And that's what's going on. So with this, society is headed for collapse. You have populism on the rise. 
you have this aspect of the commoner, and the commoner will revolt in the face of the corruption of the elite. And this is, again, Michael Vlahos's opinion, but I will just support it and speak from his perspective. And so that's what he sees. That's what's happening. That's what happened with Rome. That's what happens with every major civilization and empire. And because of all these things that I've just said, uh, these clarify that this is what is happening now. And he talks about populism. And again, if you go back to the archetype of the commoner, which is the archetype for the age of science, that is going to be the archetype of this age that we're transitioning into. And so it would just make perfect sense, to me at least, that populism would be prominent, that the commoner would revolt in the face of corruption of the elites. However, the problem and the catch is that the elites also know this, and they then steer these movements of the commoner in order to retain power. So even if they lose the power of the state, and the state isn't as powerful as it once was, they gain power through things like, let's say, the World Economic Forum, or the World Health Organization, or the various foundations or mega corporations. Now, that's what's happening today. And uh, with this, you have the Church of Woke that, again, is part of this shift. And it's a movement, in a sense, of the commoner. But again, it's a movement that has been hijacked by those at the top, the top 10%. But the issue is that the Church of Woke does not offer transcendence. It does not offer long-term, meaningful values, and it won't succeed as it is. And so, again, he also views the Church of Woke as something that will burn itself out and will not be ultimately what runs this society. It's part of this transition uh, aspect, part of this transition time period. And on the flip side, you have aspects of the Church of Woke and things that we are steering towards as a society that actually do have the ability to succeed on this level. So you could say that the virtual world and transhumanism, these things do offer transcendence. These things do offer long-term meaningful values, and they are things that are fairly concrete, even though they are also very immaterial. And uh, this is what ultimately we are shifting to as a society. Again, the Church of Woke is helping with that transition. It will influence that next step of how we set up the virtual world and how we uh, think about and perceive transhumanism. And it's opening us up. It's prepping us for this thing. But the Church of Woke isn't what's going to run things. It's the transhumanist agenda. It's the uh, virtual world, the digital world, the technological system. It's the technological society that will run things. And so, again, if you look at the Church of Woke, you could think of the Church of Woke um, as a god. It is a self-organizing system. And the Church of Woke as a whole could be thought of as an entity like that. You could think of, of the technological society as a similar thing. The technological system is a god. And uh, again, from the perspective of the ancients, it's a self-perpetuating, self-organizing system that is independent of 
human efforts on a concentrated, centralized level. So again, it uses humans in order to act and manifest in the world, but it's not that a certain human runs everything, or even a group of humans, because they die out, and the new ones come, and it's always these different humans, but the humans are the tools for the self-organizing system of the Church of Woke, or the technological system, or the corporation, or whatever. Now, this brings us to the next set of content, and that comes from Julianne Romanello. And she talks a lot about the education system and issues with culture and society, these kinds of things, and it really just flows very well with all of this stuff. So uh, one of the big things that she calls out is that we have as a society, this existential anxiety about our condition and about our future. And again, this is the issue of the is with the void of the ought. The ought really isn't there to any strong degree. So we are in the middle of the physical and the spiritual as humanity. And that's the way it's, uh, I guess, fairly universally been thought of is that as a human, I am both material, I have a physical body, and I am spiritual, I have a consciousness. There is something apart from this purely physical body that makes up who I am. I am in the middle of this physical and the spiritual. And so being in the middle, stuck in the middle, I'm not fully one or fully the other, how do we respond to this conundrum of sorts? And uh, she says that there is, it's created this existential anxiety. And I would imagine that this definitely has a lot to do with this void where materialism and the corruption of the old religions are really leaving a void that has not yet been filled. The Church of Woke is stepping in here, but it's not ultimately going to be able to last in the long run. So, If we are naturally oriented towards order and towards the spiritual, and I would say if you go back to what I've talked about with uh, the natural order of things, order is one of those principles. Um, With this, some people will respond towards this draw to order and the spiritual. They will respond to this by seeking the divine. And so you could say seeking the most high God or a God of a religion. Some people respond to it by creating some sort of divine or some sort of religion or framework. You could say Church of Woke maybe fits into that. Some attribute divinity to other things. And uh, that's basically how things work, that people are naturally oriented towards order and the spiritual. Where are they going to find that? Where are they going to uh, put that need? How are they going to fill that void? And it's by either seeking divine, creating divine, or attributing divinity to other things. And uh, the, the options for these other things and for all of this would be either God, man, the world, or society. So it's either, and let's use Christianity as our example, as we typically always do here. So it's either God, the Christian God, and that is how people orient themselves towards order and the spiritual, or they order it around 
a man or a man like the self, and that would be the dominating dominating principle of the Church of Woke is the self. Basically, you are divine. You have divinity within you. You are part of this universal divinity of the world, and get in touch with this. And, you know, that very spiritual mindset, um, that would be attributing divinity to man, to yourself. Or you could look at uh, the idea of populism that on a more secular level is filling that void to a degree that uh, we need someone to look up to, someone to provide order, someone to bring things together, someone that has these these values and morals and is going to lead us in the right direction with the correct ideology, all of these things, and they put all of this onto a man or onto a group. Um, so that's God. That would be man. The other option would be the world. So think of the environmentalist movement and climate change and these kinds of things where the natural world has this divinity of sorts and is viewed in that way that ecosystems are divine and that uh, we have to do everything we can not to harm nature and that we have to protect all of these different species and they could all be sentient in different ways and they all have their own spirits and different things like this and you know that that goes to many different degrees but uh, that would be the aspect of attributing divinity to the world and to nature, that nature is the divinity that provides the order. It provides the spiritual framework for us as humanity. And the final option, so people will either seek divine, create divine, or attribute divinity to things. The options are God, man, the world, or society. So the final option is society. So it's society as a whole that people are giving this aspect of divinity to, that all of society, that all of humanity, we are all part of uh, this one effort, this one movement. We are all one, and we are coming together, and it's going to be this utopia, and we really need some sort of organization around society as a whole so that we can all come together. We can have this order. We can uh, come together on a spiritual level, and it's it's society, it's civilization, it's culture, it's these things that people, in a sense, attribute divinity to. It's how they fill that void of needing order and the spiritual. And so these are the different aspects. Society, you could have communism or communitarianism or many other different uh, political frameworks that could fall under this category, but uh, that's the way that some people do this. And the interesting thing about the Church of Woke is that they kind of hit most of these, except they leave out God. And so what they do is uh, they orient towards the self, your own personal divinity of sorts. They orient towards the world, the environment and nature, climate change, these types of things, and glorify that. And also this idea of society, the being a part of the Church of Woke is being a part of something bigger than yourself. And it's something that is this movement that has uh, a higher purpose and gives you a higher meaning. And this is how the Church of Woke is organized. It's basically get rid of God and let's uh, fill that void in all these other ways. But the problem is that as humanity does all of this, it's a spiritual disorder. That That is the problem. We as humans are both material and immaterial. We're both physical and spiritual. 
And we need to just come to grips with this, that there is mystery in the world. There is, uh, There are things that are unknown in the world, and we need to be okay about that. We, don't, uh, we need to get away from this existential anxiety about our current condition and also the future. We can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen. There are things that happen outside of our control. And instead of responding by trying to control absolutely everything, we need to just accept the fact that we are not divine. We don't control these things. We don't know the future. However, society is trying to control everything. They're trying to determine the future. Oh, if we gather enough data and have a strong enough AI, then we can determine what is going to happen in the future. And we can have this knowledge. We can be omnipresent and omnipotent. And again, we can be gods. That's always the goal here. And uh, with this, there is an aspect that is filling this void fairly well. And it's what the Church of Woke plays on, and it's what the culture is orienting around. And that would be this concept that emotions and experiences are infinite, and the virtual world is infinite. And so if we're looking to fill this void of what is meaningful, what is spiritual, what is immaterial, uh, what what is our condition and our future, and how do we define that? How do we have a framework around that? If we are getting rid of God, which a lot of society is doing, they're filling that with emotions and experiences and the virtual world, because these things are infinite, and they can provide this uh, satisfaction of short of sorts. You could go with Kaczynski's idea of surrogate activities, that we no longer need to do the survival things, and we're throwing out a lot of the traditional spiritual religious things, and so we're filling them with these surrogate activities, with emotions and experiences and a virtual world that we create. Um, that is something that actually has some of these qualities, some of this power to fill the void fairly well. And again, it still doesn't. We still will have this spiritual disorder as a society until we return to the correct and accurate order of things and just accept the fact that we are human. We are somewhere in the middle between the material and the immaterial, the physical and the spiritual, and accept that that is the way the world is. But we're not going to do that. And especially as we shift into the age of science, that is going into full spiritualism, full immaterial world and perspective, uh, that is where we are shifting to. We're shifting into that aspect of things, of focusing not on the physical but spiritual. It's the idea of uploading your consciousness into the cloud or onto the internet or however they uh, think about doing that or transferring it to another body or to another thing. Uh, this is something where you are going completely immaterial. It's not about your physical body anymore. They are saying, well, what makes a, up a human is their consciousness. That is what defines a human. So again, totally get rid of the physical. It's not your body. And totally focus on the immaterial, the spiritual. It is your consciousness. And so they believe that if you separate the consciousness from the body, then it's the immaterial, it's the consciousness that can then continue on, and that's what matters, and that's all we need to focus on. And screw the body, we don't need that. And that is the idea of transhumanism. And that's where we're heading. So all of this stuff, all of uh, the these shifts towards 
emotions, experiences, the virtual world. It's, it's why uh, controlling the narrative is so effective in modern society. All of these are in response to our existential anxiety to control space and time. That's what we want to do. We want to control the physical. We want to control the, the natural order of things. Again, we want to be gods. And that is what society is grappling with right now. And in order to shift into these things, even though a lot of society is not really in line with this, uh, so a lot of people, if they listen to that description, they would say, no, that's not what I want. No, I'm not for that. Yet in their actions, they are actually supporting and perpetuating the trend towards all of these things. They just don't really realize it. And in order to get the 90% to go along this direction, to follow this trend line, they use buzzword magic. And so again, this idea of magic, mysticism, the immaterial, it's, it's using these buzzwords and phrases that people think sound really good. Again, it plays with their emotions, their experiences, the immaterial aspects, the narrative, but uh, really, they are not all that great. So you could look at something like describing uh, the education system as uh, being a pipeline to the workforce. Well, what is a pipeline? It's a material structure that's very controlled and confined that moves a commodity from one place to another. And that's how they're describing uh, the education of children. So when you see these various buzzwords being used and thrown around, especially in the education context, you see words like pipelines and pathways and uh, different aspects of treating kids as commodities on their way to the workforce. You have words like transformational and tactile learning and workforce training, all of these things that they sound really good, and they're good buzzwords. They give you a good feeling. And again, in this age, that's the uh, method that is probably most successful and why it works. But there is a lot of context behind them. There's a lot more behind these words. And it, they really do accurately describe how these kids are being treated. They're, tre they're being treated as a commodity that is being molded and formed and shaped so that it can reach its end destination to be used by the end user. And that would be the overall economy by the corporations or the technocracy or whatever. And that's what's happening. So with that, that is definitely something to look out for with your children and children in this society as well. So another aspect that Julianne brings up is that austerity is something that is very good in the eyes of especially conservative Republicans, especially the right politically, and they look at austerity as a very positive thing, that the government wastes a lot of money, they're using tax dollars, so we need to be very careful about government spending. Well, uh, austerity, it leads to a lack of funding, which leads to corporate filling that gap. And this leads to public-private partnerships, which is a step to technocracy. And that is how this works. So while those on the right view austerity as a way to make the government smaller, and they view that as a positive thing, at least traditionally conservative 
Republicans and those on the right. That's how they view things. But in reality, what's happening that they probably don't truly realize is that you have the corporate world filling that gap, which again, that's the whole Reformation parallel that I've talked about many times as one starts to go down, the other comes in and fills the gap. Well, Julian brought that up in the context of what we were talking about here, and that this austerity leads to a lack of funding. The corporations come in, you have these public-private partnerships, and with them, you... uh, they want to make sure that the corporations are holding up their end of the deal. And it might be a corporation, probably a foundation would be probably more likely some sort of non-governmental organization, an NGO of some sort. And with this, what they do is they put up performance contracts, or they use pay for success, or they use the buzzwords data-driven or evidence-based, all of these ways of bringing in this idea of accountability and bringing in this more technocratic method into the system. So when you have a performance contract or pay for success or something along these lines, data-driven, evidence-based accountability, all of these things are saying that the corporation or the foundation or whatever, the public-private partnership, the private side of things, the corporate world, the technocratic side, they will keep track of all of the data and all of the changes and all of the things under whatever it is they're doing. And they will have certain benchmarks that they'll have to meet in order to receive their funding from the state or get paid back in some way for what they have done because this investment that they are making, then basically the state and the public will ensure that they are doing what they said they were going to do. They are making a true difference and they'll pay out based on that performance. And so that's how this works. And with this, you could look at it in the context of education. That's one where it has been used many times, where a corporation will step into, say, an elementary school. I'll use that as an example. I think it'll be a fairly simple, easy one. So a uh, let's say the Gates Foundation. They come into an elementary school that is being run fairly poorly. The results and the kids coming out of that, uh, it's, it's not looking very good. And so the community wants to do something better. They want a better outcome for these children. Uh, but at the same time, the state's not really doing a great job. The state doesn't have a lot of funding to dump into this school. So what do you do? Well, they create a public-private partnership with the Gates Foundation, who comes in and says that they will raise test scores by 20%. On average, they will get, uh, I don't know what it would be if you're in elementary school, you can't really get graduation rates, you're kind of guaranteed to graduate elementary school, I would hope so. But uh, whatever it is, maybe they get better attendance, and they put a specific benchmark on that, where it's uh, 50% better attendance ratings overall throughout the school, uh, maybe 30% teacher retention rating increase, whatever it is that they're trying to do to make the school better. They'll set these benchmarks, and then they'll keep track of the data after they start the program. So they'll start a program where they step in, the Gates Foundation, they'll manage the school, they'll restructure things, they'll start 
these different programs that incentivize the things they want to do, like better test scores, um, more attendance, that kind of thing. And then they'll keep track of it. And as they hit these benchmarks, then they will get paid back for this work and make a nice profit from it. And so that's how that works. Well, what is this? This is technocracy. This is, <laughs> this is the idea of stepping in and manage th- managing things in order to get a specific data-driven outcome based on technology and information. Like That's how technocracy works. And so that is being implemented through this uh, method of the public-private partnerships. Now, to take a step back a little bit, rewind a bit back to the overall issue, and this will wrap things up. The overall issue, according to Julian Romanello, is that we have this spiritual disorder. We have this problem. Humans have a big issue of being in the middle of the physical and the spiritual, of having this existential anxiety about our condition and our future. And the reality is that the human experience is suffering. It is imperfection. It is mystery. These types of things, these are a part of the human experience. And what people are wanting to do in this current age is to manipulate this experience and change it, turn it into something different. It's driven by the will to know, and they're going to use information and data and these types of things. We're going to understand how our brains work, how our chemistry works, how our DNA works, how technology works, how the natural order works, all of these things. We're going to get to know all of these things. Again, this age, is driven by the will to know. And we are going to use that to manipulate nature and overall to manipulate what it means to be human. And again, if the human experience is suffering imperfection and mystery, well, if we know it all, we get rid of the mystery. If we take that imperfection and improve it, we improve the human through genetics and technology. That takes care of the imperfection part. And if we can make this a very blissful, positive emotional experience that never ends, you get rid of the suffering part. And that's what happens when you have transhumanism. That's what happens when you create your own virtual world and become your own gods. That is what this big push is for in this age that we are shifting into. Now, that does wrap up what Julianne Romanella talked about, so I will shift right on into Allison McDowell. One thing that she is very big on is that blockchain technology is something that will be used to enslave us, that there is this push to combine the physical and the virtual, and that this is going to be a very negative thing for humanity. So, One of the things that she points out is that there is this need in our modern society and our economies and a a corporate model in general for constant growth. This is something that was done through consumer culture and debt-based finance. And if you go back, you can find the episode that I did called Debt-Based Society. And I talked also about consumerism and materialism and all these things. And that's, that's the way that this was done. You increase your demand out there in the market in true Keynesian fashion. And you do this by manipulating the public through propaganda, marketing, advertising, these kinds of things. And in doing so, your market grows, yours being your industry or you as a corporation 
subscription or whatever. And that is how you continue to grow. And you will always grow. That's that's the rule that's baked in to our current system is that you need this constant growth. Well, now that these things are starting to come to a head, you can only expand markets so much. You can only uh, run things into the ground so far, and they need a new place to go. And this new place to go is the virtual world. And this is now being done through virtual world building, where they're creating these new markets with infinite expansion possibilities. And when you start incorporating things like DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, with AIs, with uh, decentralized entities and things of this nature, then you can have these things living in these virtual worlds and uh, exponentially growing. And you can create such a large market that really there is no end to. And you don't even need even more humans. It's good to have the more humans, and you probably technically need a certain amount. But also, the economy that exists in this virtual world can potentially have constant growth and fairly consistent growth through these new vehicles that are being introduced. Now, one thing that Allison McDowell points out that I think is very important is the aspect of the spatial web. And the idea of that is the the manifestation of the internet onto the physical world. So you can think IoT on steroids, the internet of things where you have augmented layers that are on the physical world, linking the physical with the virtual through things like sensors and tracking and technology, things like that. So picture uh, this in your mind where you're walking down a street, and I've used this example before, so I apologize if this I've used this very recently. But if you're walking down the street and you have some augmentation on your eyes where you can overlay virtual aspects onto the physical world. So your experience as you walk down the street is you might see certain maybe fantastic animals that are out and about. And when you look at a shop, you may have information that automatically pops up that you can uh, go through and sort through. And when somebody comes and passes by you, heck, their name, their bio, something might pop up or some other aspect. All of these things could be happening. So from your perspective, your perception of the world All of these things are a part of the world that you live in. And the virtual has been manifested in the physical through these enhancements and alterations that you've made to yourself. Now, these could be uh, something done on a DNA level where you manipulate your DNA in some way to have your body do certain things that it wouldn't have otherwise. Or it can be pure technology where you're just wearing a pair of glasses, in a sense, or contacts, and you're doing this through that method. Or it could be a blend of both, which is probably the most likely. You could think maybe uh, Elon Musk's brain chip, Neuralink, something of that nature. And that's what's going on. It's we are at the beginning of the spatial web as it is being implemented and manifesting in our current reality. Now, with all of this, 
in this new world that we're going to be living in that is meshing the virtual with the physical, the nature of work will be building skills and badges and credentials and education and all of these kinds of things doing small gigs on a virtual platform that will be linked to your digital ID. So she says, like I have said for a very long time, that we are headed towards having a universal digital ID that this will be linked to maybe a list of credentials for your bio, for your ID. And what you do is you go out and get new badges, you get new credentials, you uh, get new creditations of different kinds. And that is how you get new jobs. So maybe there's a job that posts where they need XYZ done, but they need someone with skill, uh, XYZ, and you do have those things. And so you can prove that because you have the badges on your digital ID that show you have been through the training, you have passed the exams, you have these credentials, they'll look at your resume and your background and your reviews and all these things. And then they'll hopefully hire you for that gig and you'll do the gig, get it done and move on. And that's more how she sees the nature of work being manifested in the future, which definitely does make sense. All of this in her mind will be on some sort of blockchain platform. So she says that education and skills credentials will be on the blockchain linked as well and tied to capital markets. So this is another aspect that really uh, turns a little dark here where we have these digital IDs. All of these things are attached to our digital ID. It's attached to a digital currency. It's attached to uh, all of these different aspects of our society, our economy, our governments, all of these things. And with all of this, you then have a digital representation of yourself, your digital twin that does exist. And it is on this virtual layer, whereas you, the physical person, you are on the physical layer. And so what happens is that if I as a person can be represented in a digital format through, let's say, uh, this NFT of my digital ID, then what can happen is these IDs can then be linked to capital markets. And then you can have markets for humans. And that gets very interesting. So if you look at something like social impact bonds or social impact financing, these are financial tools where corporations and foundations can basically make money on on a group of people, on a group of humans, where there is some metric for some sort of social impact that they are supposed to meet, which is manifested by the certain humans in the in the population that they're uh, doing this work in. So you have a population of people, they're going to have a certain social impact on that group of people. And if they meet that social impact, the bond pays out. And if they don't, it doesn't. It's that sort of thing. But when you tie this to a digital ID and your digital twin being implemented on the capital markets in this way, then basically what you have are are people as represented by tokens of some sort that are then invested 
in by, say, a foundation or a corporation or whatever, and that corporation or foundation is dumping money into a program to benefit these individual uh, tokens and basically people. And if they manipulate the people in a certain way, get a certain outcome, then they will make money on that. And so it's the outcome of whatever these tokens, whoever these tokens represent that the corporations and the foundations are after. And so this is the way that the financial markets are tied to people. And when you get into derivative markets where you can uh, short the market and short a commodity or a person, which is now uh, represented represented as a digital commodity, then uh, that means that you are betting against a certain positive outcome for an individual. And so if you're shorting a group of tokens, a group of people, then you are betting for their outcome to be negative. And when you tie that to programs that are going on today, for example, Cardano is doing a big program in Ethiopia. That was the example she used where they have brought on, I don't even remember how many thousands of people or kids onto blockchain through a digital ID program and all of these things. Well, picture something like that. Tie that to things that Julian Romanello was talking about, as well as Allison McDowell with these social impact bonds and performance contracts, things like that. So a foundation comes in and they have all these kids. So you pull all the kids together. That's a group of tokens from this certain school or this certain region. And you are you as a corporation or foundation are wanting to get a certain result out of this group of kids. You're wanting to improve their test scores or improve graduation rates or whatever. And so you are investing into these tokens, you are putting money on it with the expectation and the goal of getting a higher return on your money. And that's the investment there. Well, if this is being done in capital markets through digital tokens, then you can have a derivatives market that is doing the opposite, that is placing a short or betting against Uh, these tokens. And so in that case, then you have another foundation or corporation or individuals that are stepping in and saying, um, no, we're going to put our money down on these kids not meeting these improvement standards and them not graduating and them not doing well. And then they have money riding on a negative outcome for the children. And that's not a good thing at all. And so that is a warning that Allison McDowell is very, very, very uh, wary of and wants to point out to everyone, which I agree. And so with this, she believes that social impact bonds, social impact financing, derivative markets, all of these things, the capitalization of your digital tokenized version of you, uh, these things will be built to make up for the financial gap between universal basic income and less available work out there. So she believes that we'll all be on some sort of UBI. Governments will hand out checks a small amount every month or something like that. You'll have your credits that you can use for certain things. Then you'll have this gig economy based on your digital credentials and things like this, but that overall, there'll be less work out there. So what you can do is you can take this digital representation of yourself, your digital twin, your token ID, whatever it is, and you can voluntarily put that into a social impact bond or some sort of capital market 
um, platform. And then you can ideally earn interest and earn money based on you being a part of one of these different schemes going on. And uh, that's, yeah, again, something that is very dangerous. So what Alison McDowell talks about a lot is colonization. And with colonization, she's big on going back to earlier forms of colonization, which goes back to the virtual world building that I talked about at the beginning of this little section, where basically the markets have expanded to somewhere close to their peak. And if we still want uh, this high growth rate, this high growth target to be hit, then we need a new place to expand into, and that's the virtual world. Well, that's colonization, where you have an area that expands, an empire, whatever, and it needs more land, it needs more resources, and it colonizes these other new areas. And so what's happening is that the next level of colonization is to erase the natural world and humans in exchange for a virtual world and transhumans or whatever you want to call that. I don't know what that's called. But uh, with that, the virtual then colonizes the natural. And that is what's going on today. And that's the idea of the spatial web where the virtual is implementing itself, manifesting itself onto the physical and it's pulling the physical into the virtual. And that this is, she views that as colonization of the AI or the virtual world or whatever this is, maybe the technological system, technological society. You can go Uncle Ted over here and say that that is the entity of technological society manifesting itself in the world, colonizing the natural world and bringing it all into itself. And that would definitely make a lot of sense. So with all of this in the current context of our modern culture, current warfare is over the brain and over narrative. These are the two things that she thinks is the main focal point for warfare in our modern age. And I would totally agree. It's how people think and how people perceive the world. We can't compete through force with governments and corporations. We just can't do that. They they have the technology, they have the weapons, they have the ability to take us out pretty easily if they so choose. And so that is, uh, I can't say we can't compete on force, but it would be very difficult to compete on a level of physical force. But on a level of spiritual force or immaterial warfare on the spiritual level, we can compete. And so that's the positive outlook that Alison McDowell points out and that I would agree with that that if we are in this new form of warfare, and I did that episode a few episodes back on fifth generational warfare and what that means, and if that's where we are, which I believe we are, and we're entering into a spiritual, a mystical, and immaterial age, and that's where the warfare is happening, then it just makes sense that that's where the warfare happens, and that's where we fight that war. And so that is why I would say we're in the meme wars, and that is where we are today. A meme is something that it it is virtual, it is digital, it is immaterial. It's not a paragraph that states things specifically. It's a picture that represents context that has some sort of interpretation with just a few words that bring about a certain mental image. This this is how uh, the modern age is oriented. It's, it's like what McLuhan talks about with the medium being the message and the medium of the digital world with the radio and television. And I'll go ahead and update that to the internet. These things are much more uh, audible 
and uh, they are much more immaterial. They're a lot less linear. And so that's why when you have something like a meme, where um, it's like the idea of Newspeak in 1984, it's the language that gets smaller over time. A meme is it's the epitome of this, where one image with a few little words captures what before it would have taken a page or uh, you would have had to listen to something for 30 seconds for an entire commercial to figure out what the message was that someone was trying to convey. They couldn't convey that in such a small uh, format. And with the meme, you can. And that's what's going on is that our society is oriented towards having all of this stuff condensed into this small format that is an immaterial format. It's a digital format. It's a, a pictorial format. It's a format of of pictures and context and interpretation and all of these things. And that is why the meme is so effective. That's why when you see a meme, it it has an impact on you because because that is how the technology has shaped us, because that is the age that we are shifting into as a society, because that's just where we are. That's fifth generational warfare. This is where we are. And so with this, we can fight in the meme wars in an effective way by using narrative and perception and things of this nature to put forth these positive messages, these messages that are in line with the natural order. And we can actually combat a lot of these negative aspects of what's going on in the world and what we're headed for as far as the future is concerned. And so I guess that's where I'll go ahead and just end here is on that positive note that when we are in the meme wars and you can meme, then you can actually fight and possibly have an impact. And especially in a world where things can go viral, that's probably a much bigger impact than you would have as a soldier on the front lines. And so uh, this is definitely a positive, even though this type of warfare is one that is taking over all of society and we are not on the winning side currently. At least there is hope and that is a positive thing. So with that, I will end this episode here. I will say that I did an interview. I think I mentioned this at the beginning of this episode, did an interview with Toward Anarchy and I did retweet the announcement of that interview on Twitter. So if you're following on there, you should have that. I will try to get that in the show notes. And if not, I will upload it on the website one day and you can visit it there. Or you can just search for Toward Anarchy, your public broadcasting network, Michael Storm, and you should be able to find it. We talked about a lot of these things that I just got done talking about. And so... With that, I would like to say thank you to all of you listeners. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a listener. Thank you for any ratings or reviews that you have left. If you have not done that, please take a minute to do that. That is extremely helpful. Thank you very much to those that are willing to support this podcast financially and support what I'm doing and my research and all the time that I put in this. I really appreciate your support. And I also encourage all of you to get in touch with me. Send me an email, ourfoundations at protonmail.com. Send any feedback, comments, questions, concerns, whatever. If you want more sources on something or a link to something or you didn't catch a name that I said, whatever the case may be, feel free to reach out. I love hearing from listeners and from people that definitely have a much more like-minded perception of the world. And so please do so if you are so inclined. Other than that, I will be back next week. I hope you are here to listen 
Thank you very much for all of your support of all kinds. I'm out. Peace. This has been our Foundations Podcast. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye-bye.